Welcome back. Uh, gonna start this one pretty straightforward. Those of you who don't remember or haven't met her before, uh, well, welcome and joined by Gabe Bergmoser today. A friend of the channel, interviewed him ages ago for his series, Boone Shepherd. His new book's out, The Hunted. Gabe, how you been? Very, very good. Um, very, very busy, which is, given the circumstances, something I'm extremely grateful for. That is always a good problem to have. Um, tell me a bit about The Hunted just before we get started. Um, I was going to do it in my own words, but I'm sure I just butcher it. <laughs> um, but it's together <laughs> no, from the right, look, mouth. <laughs> I've been asked to do the elevator pitch for The Hunted so many times recently that like, I think I've got it down to a fine art. And now having said that, I'll almost certainly screw it Absolutely. up. Absolutely. But essentially, The Hunted is a thriller. It's published by HarperCollins. It takes place on a dusty, desolate, deserted, almost deserted highway in the middle of nowhere, Australia. And it centers on Frank, who is an aging roadhouse attendant. He's been living out there by himself for a long time. You get the impression that there's something in his past he's kind of running from. But when we meet him, his young granddaughter has been sent to stay with him, who he's never really had a relationship with. It's very awkward between them. They're both essentially just wanting to get through these two weeks that they're together with you know the least amount of interaction possible and then one afternoon in the roadhouse they're there with a couple of people who've stopped by to get some fuel and this car comes careening up the front comes to a hold at an odd angle almost taking out one of the fuel pumps the door opens a girl steps out covered in mud and blood and the only thing she says before she passes out is don't call the police which propels us into what is essentially a fast-paced, pulse-pounding, these, these are all the buzzwords I've been told you about my publisher, <laughs> yep. uh, action thriller siege story set in this roadhouse that also alternates with a past narrative that explores who this girl is and how she came to end up in this situation. And about halfway through the book, the two collide, the two timelines collide, and then it's essentially a very bloody, very visceral race to the finish line from there. See, that was pretty good. I feel like you, you didn't give yourself enough credit going into it. That was quite a good summary. <laughs> I like that. Um, absolutely. I mean, look, that's more eloquent than I would have put it. Um, I kind of, as I was going through it, it, you know, it gave me tones of, of all of the things you would expect. Like it's got your, your Mad Max vibes periodically. It's, it's sort of got this, um, almost this like slasher element toward the end that I really enjoyed. Um, I guess going from obviously working in the YA space to then moving into more of this, I, it's not even new territory for you because obviously with with movie maintenance and some of the work you've done previously in the in the play space that's much more adult but this is definitely a different kind of book than any of the YA stuff that you put out previously going into it like was the process dramatically different how what was sort of um what was your approach to this one that, that might have been different or, or sort of changed or evolved um yeah I, I think that it was in terms of process it probably wasn't all that different I mean I've I've never really seen myself as the kind of writer who can be very easily pinned down or pigeonholed in terms of what I write. Like if you look at sort of the broad spectrum of the stuff I've done over the years, I mean, the Boone Shepherd books, which were quirky adventure, uh, steampunky, Tintin meets Doctor Who set in the world of Lemony Snicket, you know, very odd, very kind of left of center, offbeat sort of uh, mystery adventure storytelling. And then a lot of the plays I've done have been a bit darker and grittier, but I've also done quite a bit in the comedy sphere in terms of writing comedy plays like We Can Work It Out, My Beatles Show or The Critic, which was doing the rounds of uh, the Fringe Festival and everything last year. So, so I mean, writing something that was more gritty and visceral and full on like this, it was just sort of, in some ways, it was just kind of adding another, oh God, this sounds so wanky, but like almost adding like another 
feather to the cap in a way mm -hmm. where it was like, well, I've never tried this before and I want to try it. And I mean, in its earliest iteration, it was actually a short story or a novella kind of in, in that weird 15,000 word space where it's not really a short story you can read like in, you know, in like one sitting. Yeah. But it's not quite a novella either. But I wrote that during the movie maintenance years when I used to be on that podcast. Mm -hmm. And it was sort of an exercise in, well, I've never really written horror before and I've never really written anything like this before. So I really want to try it. But I don't think it was weirdly as in as much as it was in some ways a departure i've always been a massive horror buff and i've always been first and foremost a thriller reader like the bulk mm -hmm. of what i read are crime thrillers so i think all of the tools were sort of there and at the time i didn't really think much of the shift i was just sort of like oh yeah cool this is something i haven't really done before and i want to try it out mm -hmm. and what happened was that when i finished that novella short story whatever you want to call it I enjoyed writing it so much and I enjoyed writing one of the characters so much that I basically found myself in a place where I really wanted to expand on it and I really wanted to continue it. So about a year later, after a few other projects had fallen through, I revisited it. I wrote sort of a continuation of it and that, that then became, I guess, the framing device for the flashbacks that you see in the book. And I sort of mashed yep. these two different chunks of the story together and and from there it was just sort of the editing and the tweaking and everything and and I just very much fell in love with with that that kind of mode of writing that I hadn't been been really involved in before I guess interesting I think that was going to be my next question was around that framing device because it is obviously it, it's it's kind of hypercritical to the the structure of the story um you mentioned it a little bit before but just by way of context basically there's the two parallel timelines the then and the now um, and as you said, as the story progresses, they collide at the end. And that's sort of um, like the tale of the third start of the fourth act. And you get sort of everything that, that flows from there. Um, I guess you sort of answered it, but but when you were kind of chopping and changing and putting them together, what was that like when you have all of those kind of pieces and you sort of want to fold them together? Was was that a really difficult negotiation or was it quite a natural sort of fit? Uh it was look it was fairly natural um obviously it was it was a weird way to write a book because you know it was it was a tricky case where i, I felt like i was in this weird in-betweeny space with it because the novella i'd written i'd enjoyed so much and i'd wanted to expand it but when i looked at the idea of expanding it you know do i bulk out that narrative do i try to build it into something more novel length but when i looked at that it just felt hugely unnatural you know i, I felt like expanding that beyond the 15 or so thousand words would just mean padding a lot mm -hmm. you know that was that story was intended to unfold a certain way and i was very proud of that story and i didn't really want to i guess bastardize the intention by trying to make that more than it was and then the idea of writing a continuation part of it when i sort of played out that you know when i sort of went through uh the material i had for that it was a similar thing it was like oh look i've probably got about thirty thousand words of material here and so early on, I thought, you know, do I do it in part one, part two? You know, part one is the flashback stuff, which if you read yeah. the book is the material with Maggie and Simon in the town. Part two is the siege story in the roadhouse. But there was an issue there because when I looked at it in terms of building narrative momentum, it would essentially mean that partway into the story, you'd reach a climax and then the story would jump and then you'd have a whole setup of another group of characters yeah. and building them and their demons and everything. And then it would sort of pick up from there. And that, that felt to me like a frustrating way for a story to unfold. So the solution ended up being that I would alternate the timelines and it was kind of a happy accident because 
in both timelines, there is fundamentally the same mystery at the start of it, which is who is Maggie. Correct. So in the past timeline, Simon, who's our audience surrogate, uh, university student, traveling Australia, looking for some esoteric idea of the real Australia, runs into Maggie in a bar. She's got a cigarette burn scar on her collarbone. She's got a bag full of money. She's clearly running from something, but he's attracted to her and he hasn't really had any company for a long time and he's very compelled by her, but he can't help but wonder who the hell is this girl? Whereas mm-hmm. in the present timeline, she turns up at the roadhouse covered in mud and blood. She's clearly been through hell and these people turn up chasing her. And for those characters, the question is, what has she done? Yes. Like, is she is she the victim or is she the instigator here and these people are after revenge? You know, what is basically, is Maggie a good person or a bad person? And that question is kind of at the crux of both timelines. So it felt very natural to unfold them in parallel because it's at that point in the middle of the story where the two timelines intersect that you actually get your answer to the question of what side Maggie is on, yeah. who she is. Because if you think about it, all through the past timeline, she she could be a bad guy you know she leads Simon, and she she kind of is in some ways you know i mean she leads she, simon into trouble she even acknowledges it herself a little bit she's like that yes, this yes. you know this was a shitty thing that i have done and and yet i can't be accountable for other people's actions like there's there's a bit exactly. of that push and pull in the middle yeah exactly and then you know so so the 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 that dramatic question, I guess, is answered about partway through the book and that propels into the second part of it. So structurally, that made a lot of sense. And mm-hmm. But I, I can't claim if it, if it has been successful, which uh, I guess, according to the bulk of the critical reaction, it has been. I can't, uh, I can't, I almost can't really take credit for it because it was sort of the only avenue that was available to me. And then when yes. I sort of stitched it all together and, you know, um, wrote the two, because I'd written the two chunks separately and then I sort of chopped them up and interspersed and had a look at it and I played with it. And then I sort of thought, oh, well, do I try to, I guess, obscure the past timeline so I don't reveal that it's in the past and it's only kind of, I do the Westworld thing where it's only part oh, of yeah. the story where you realize that it's two parallel timelines. But, every publisher I spoke to before it got picked up by Harper was like, that's going to piss off the audience because they're going to figure out very quickly what's going on and they're going to get annoyed. You know, you'll have a Dexter season six situation on your hands where everyone's going to be like, we know the twist, stop it. You're not as clever as you think you are. So it just seemed like the smartest thing to signpost it right from the start with the now and then things. Interesting. I I think even that transparency is something that... And not, not, not to be patronizing to people that don't do this, but when it is something like that, where the, the, the twist is not actually the then and the now, the twist is, as you say, that the push and pull of like Maggie and whether or not she's on the right side of things and whether or not she's a good person, that's actually the, the twist of the reveal is like, where does she stand as far as, can't, do we like her? Are we supposed to be supporting her? Or is she the bad guy? I think there is a tendency a lot of the time with structural devices like that to go, wow, isn't this really smart and clever? Won't we pull the wool over everyone's eyes and won't they be impressed when we kind of, you know, review it's like, I think of it as like the Stephen Moffat style of, of structure where it's like, won't they be impressed when we pull the curtain back and it turned out to be X, Y, Z the whole time. I think that's why I found it readily engaging because it, it also made it really easy to separate. And, and this seems like an obvious thing to say, but Maggie in the now is, is not necessarily in it for, the majority of that timeline until they collide she's she's unconscious so for the most part her characterization is her in the past so it's not it, it feels less there's less cognitive dissonance that if we were jumping between her you know then and now and you, we need like some signifier where it's like okay well was she, you know is she wearing the jacket okay now she's in the current is she not wearing the jacket she's in the past there would need to be some other device there so i, I thought it was a really simple way to just let the story flow and i guess 
that was quite enjoyable. But when it comes to the, the then, I guess, because that seems like the piece that, as you said before, came after, when you were putting that together, I found Simon a really interesting character for like a ton of reasons. Um, is that someone that you readily associate with? Or like, as you say, it's an audience surrogate, but is that a character that you associate with or is it more of a portrait of people, you know, a, a type of person that you know, or sort of, yeah, I, I guess like how did he matriculate into the, into the, the work? So Simon as a character, in, in some ways, he's the archetypical uh, privileged uni student, basically, for, for want of a better phrase. You know, he's somebody yeah. who's had, uh, you know, middle class upbringing, uh, never really faced any adversity in his life, but he's, he's not unaware of that. I mean, I would sort of argue in some ways that's the crux of his character. He's somebody who is aware of how sheltered he is and is in some ways bravely making an active choice to try and push himself outside his comfort zone but you know I, I didn't want simon to be a caricature and i didn't want him to be somebody who is there to be mocked or laughed at or derided because in a lot of ways he's just me yeah. and that was and then and like that was something that it's interesting because my brother read this earlier in the year back before the pandemic i was in austria with my family over there and my brother was reading the hunted over there and I remember him being about a quarter into the book and he just kind of looked at me with this withering contempt and he was just like, oh yeah, the Simon character is obviously you, you know, author insert. And I was like, ah, you know, wait until you see what happens to him. Yeah. Because I think that there are assumptions about author insert characters when, you know, it's like Christopher Paolini telling everybody that Aragon is based on him, Correct. right? Where yeah. you kind of go, oh yeah, of course, you know, you're the heroic swashbuckler who gets to, you know, you know, you get to romance the sexy elf girl. And, and it's like a Lee Child saying that Jack Reacher is him. And I, I kind of... <laughs> does he say I, that? He shouldn't. does. He genuinely does. <laughs> That's he, wild. There was, there was that interview recently, you know, because he stepped back from writing the Jack Reacher books. I think he's he's got his he's got his brother to do it now. And he said something in his, like, statement about it where he was like, oh, you know, if 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 Reacher is me, then Reacher is also my brother. And, you know, and I'm like, you don't, you, you, but you're not Jack Reacher. Yeah. You don't, you don't go, but, but again, it's just that like, and, and I see it a lot in, like, I read this book recently. I don't want to name it, but like, just because I, I know, I guess some of the parties involved, but it's a book that, you know, involves like a, a middle-aged journalist who, you know, goes to this place and he sleeps with the beautiful young young woman who's there and she falls head over heels in love with him and everything and and the book's written by a middle-aged former journalist and you kind of just go and yeah. I don't, don't get me wrong it was a very good book I enjoyed it but there's just part of me that goes all right like really you know like really it just it's it's and I don't want to make assumptions about the author's intent there but from an audience perspective it seems like a, a weird kind of author insertion uh you know the the character who's clearly meant to reflect you has everything sort of go right and gets to be the hero mm -hmm. and everything so simon in some ways was a conscious push against that you yeah. know i wanted to i wanted to really critically engage with how would somebody like me act in this situation and you see very quickly because one of one of the themes that i'm fascinated by is the idea that in high pressure situations we show our true colors and yes. impossible choices become very possible when the gun is to our head you know I, i've used that i guess as a mantra for a lot of stories and that that runs throughout the hunted you know every single character in the hunted comes up against a situation that they did not expect and they learn something about themselves that they did not expect so you know in in some cases that's that's bravery in some cases in the in the case of you know delilah for example she realizes that she's a lot braver than she thought she was when her back is against the wall in the case of somebody like frank it's a similar realization in the case of somebody like simon it's not that in the case of simon it's when things turn sketchy 
he panics and he runs and he literally tries to give up Maggie to save himself. Yeah. And I don't think that that makes him a bad person. I think that makes him a human being who ends up in a genuinely horrifying situation. And, you know, if people kind of say, oh, you know, what a scumbag, how dare he do that? I'd be like, well, you get in a situation where you're surrounded by shotgun toting people who are going to hunt you for sport. And you tell me that you're going to act any braver than he does. Mm-hmm. So, and because I, I, I genuinely believe that if, if I had ever been brave enough to do the pseudo Kerouac road trip that I always insisted in my teenage years I was going to do, mm-hmm. I would act exactly like Simon in the situation. I would walk into the bar. I would totally get swept up by the pretty girl. I would go along with her when she said, even, even if every sign was that she was dangerous, I would totally invite her into my car. I yeah. would all of that. And I would end up at that town and I would end up like Simon. <laughs> this is, yeah, I could feel, I could feel that, that authenticity though. Like it's a, uh... It's a difficult thing because it is very like amorphous to to try and explain. But I, th- I think maybe that there's this gap in media criticism or discussion in the language of exactly what you're talking about, which is that that author insert where if it has a tendency sometimes to come across as like kind of fan fictiony, where you're like writing yourself into these stories, like it has that same kind of tonal problem where it's like, yeah, we get it, like. You you want to be as you were saying before, like you want to be the you know the journalist who gets the hot the hot babes or whatever. There there has to be like language for the other side of that where it's like yeah you're injecting elements of yourself into the story, but it's more self critical and more um, yeah. There's just not really like language around that to yeah yeah. That's the thing you know. I, I believe that I don't think that self insertion is in any way a bad thing, but I think it's a bad thing if it becomes self aggrandizing or if it Correct. becomes this kind of form of wish fulfillment. I mean. I mean, my very next book, The True Colour of Little White Lie, which comes out in March, I mean, that that is based quite heavily on a lot of my teenage experiences. And the main character is very much, I mean, like he's not, you know, he's not a one-to-one comparison to me. He's quite different in a lot of ways. He's a, he's a better teenager than I ever was. But that character is very much, you know, an author surrogate and a stand-in mm-hmm. for me. But again, I don't think it's a particularly flattering one. You know, I think that, that there's a lot in that book, similar to The Hunted in some ways, that is quite self-critical and is quite honest about you know, about the shortcomings that you have when you're that age and the shortcomings that you have when you're, you know, growing up and you're selfish and you haven't really figured out empathy yet. And, and that's, and that's exactly, I think what I was going for with Simon, I thought, all right, look, I'm going to do this conscious author insert thing, but it's not going to go the way you think. And I mean, not to, not to use the phrase that everybody hates in a post last Jedi world, the subverting expectations thing, (laughs) but there was part of me that sort of was a little bit kind of thrilled when my brother made that point because i was like all right just wait and see just wait and see because it's not going to go the way you think i think like i think that's definitely a part of it is that it there's a smug satisfaction that you feel like i know i felt it as i was reading it because i i know you personally i was reading it and i was like yeah okay gabe and then it got to the point where the actually the moment i realized it was going differently was they in the 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 rural town with the 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 rednecks um and it's that first night where they're sort of they're at the big bonfire um, and the moment I knew it was going to go differently was when Maggie sort of, um, was really, really easily able to engage with these people on a social level. And Simon was really struggling and was sort of following her around and she kept kind of ditching him. That was the second I realized I was like, oh, this isn't, this is not a flattering, um, portrayal of this kind of character. This is actually like pretty critical. Um, and that moment was like such a real kind of like, it, it felt really like way too close to home where I was like, oh, I've been in that exact situation where you are with this hot girl and like suddenly you feel like you're, you're ill-equipped to deal with the social situation you're in and you just kind of trail after her and sulk or whatever. That was such a, a, a visceral like 
twists of that knife of that character was with that that particular sequence like i i found it really really vivid i don't know if that's just because of my personal experiences but when it comes to putting that stuff together and putting simon in that situation was that just a natural like fish out of water if we put him here something's going to happen or was that a deliberate kind of turning point in that relationship um i i don't know if i would say deliberate turning point i, I think that it was it was in some ways the payoff to the setup of Simon's quest to find the real Australia is not going to go the way he thinks, you know, mm -hmm. what he's going to come up against is not going to be as easily digestible as he would like to assume. And I think it was drawing from personal experience. I mean, I've never been to a town full of human hunting psychopaths, <laughs> but <not>. yeah. <laughs> I have been in situations, particularly in my hometown, particularly growing up where, you know, I would go to a party or, or whatever. And I would know that I was well out of my depth. I would be surrounded by people who I could not relate to, who I could not connect to, who I could not talk to. And I could not seem to put a foot right with. And I think yeah. there is this, I mean, one of the big themes in the book is, Australian masculinity and the ways in which, you know, there is a performative aspect to Australian masculinity, but there's also a dangerous aspect to it in some ways when it's not performative or, or you know, in some ways when it is performative, you know, there's a lot of angles and in some ways most of the characters are different representations of how different people can be affected by it. But, you know, in Simon's case, I was... I was very much hearkening back to circumstances where I'd been, you know, in similar positions. But as you said, with, in terms of his proximity to Maggie in that scene I mean haven't we all been to that party where we think we're getting on with this girl and then she just sort of seems to constantly slip away and talk to somebody else and do yeah. something else and you have that you have that growing sense of being like oh I'm not doing as well here as I thought I was but you're also the only person I know and I've spent all night talking to you so I kind of have to pathetically cling to you even though it's really clear that you're not interested but I'm too sort of out of my depth to talk to anybody else and now I just feel like a scumbag and I feel like an idiot and I feel really exposed and I feel like everyone's laughing at me and you know, I think that that is a very relatable and very human thing. The difference being that in real life, it doesn't end as badly With as it does camp, with Simon. But it, it and I, I, I think obviously like the scale of the consequence is very different, but it, it, it is this like inherent part of, and I don't know if it's just an Australian thing. I'm, I'm sure that, you know, sexism and masculinity like um, develops and presents itself differently in different parts of the world. But there is something pernicious about the way it happens in Australia, where that exact situation you're talking about, that this dude, that, that, that a male in that situation feels pathetic and powerless is maybe not the way that that situation would, would, would be perceived if it was someone that was differently gendered. And I think that's sort of one of the things that I found really interesting about the book. And we'll loop back to the masculinity in a second because I really want to dive into that. But when it comes to someone like Simon, the fact that he's so readily available to, you know, a large reader base, which is like you're kind of, you know, people our age who are sort of um, young white dudes who, you know, Australian guys who maybe aren't, you know, the most blokey, like uh, cool, you know, comfortable um, projecting that masculinity, get into these situations, have to then deal and cope with it. And Simon's coping mechanism is, as you say, like clinging to the one person he does know, because what other choice does he have? And he eventually just goes to bed, if, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and that seems like such, a, such an indictment on his character that he's unable to deal with it. But it's probably the correct decision in that situation. Like, it, it's that the judgment is there and he's feeling judged and you can feel the push and pull of him trying to resist that. But that he's being judged for it is the issue, not necessarily the behavior. And it's just a really, it's a really subtly put together scene. I just, I really enjoyed how 
it sort of opened the gateway for me then to look back at the rest of the book and start to put together all the pieces of, of what was going on as far as everyone representing those different aspects of masculinity. So talk to me about that. Let's, let's, let's pivot a little bit with the, one of the obvious focuses of this book that I picked up when I was reading it and was something that I wrote about in my review is this, this masculinity is like ever present and it seems to be intrinsically related to the setting. Did that, was it the setting that came first and you went, okay, I've, I've got this really cool kind of Mad Maxi sunburnt landscape. And then the second you put Simon in those themes developed or was like, how did that kind of come about, I guess? Well, incrementally, and I think that often, in fact, almost usually theme reveals itself to you over time. And I've often found that the theme I think I'm writing about tends to either, I guess, either be more complicated than what I initially thought or not be what I initially thought or, or you know, whatever. I think in every story that you feel a burning urge to write, there's something that you want to explore and something that you want to say. And often that doesn't become evident until later in the process, I guess. I mean, I'd had this idea in my head for years. I'd had the idea of the the town that you just shouldn't go to and the the travelers who turn up in that town and and things go very badly for them. I'd had that probably for at this stage about a decade. I think I had it in 2010 or 2011 initially. And mm -hmm. I've been thinking about it for years. And originally I was thinking about writing it as a screenplay, but I hadn't, I hadn't seriously thought about it. You know, I knew that there'd be a guy and a girl in a beat up old car. I knew that they'd be traveling together. I knew that they wouldn't know each other very well. I knew that there might be a dark secret. Somebody was on the run and I knew that they'd go to a town and things would go bad. That was all I knew. Mm -hmm. And I've been meaning to write it for a long time. In fact, I think I'd started writing it a couple of times, but I just never really, never really knew about it. And uh, never really, I guess, fully understood it or connected to it. And what initially led me to write the aforementioned novella version, weirdly, this actually goes back to my movie maintenance days mm -hmm. where we all, several of us who were in the cast of movie maintenance wrote uh, and self-published an anthology of short horror stories That's right. called Seasons of Fear. And the idea was that every one of us would take a different season and write a different story based around that season. And I remember when that idea was brought to me, I was like, oh, what would I write? What season do I want? And then I remembered this story and I was like, well, I could do that and I'll do summer. Mm -hmm. And so I was, I guess I was kind of toying with that. And then it clicked into place that I would call it sunburnt country. And it would be about somebody trying to find the real Australia and he finds it. Now that's yeah. not a particularly nuanced idea. You know, the, 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 in fact, it's kind of like Sledgehammer Blunt, the suggestion that the true Australia is this, you know, shotgun-toting, pig-hunting, beer-swilling, violence, undercurrent of toxic masculinity or whatever. Mm -hmm. But in, for, for a short horror story that was designed to pack a punch and leave the audience creeped out, I think it was perfectly appropriate. And I was sort of building on themes that, that I think I'd first discovered and explored in a couple of my favourite plays, like The Golden Age by Louis Naura, which I think is probably one of the best explorations of the the stunted nature of Australian or at least white Australian culture that I've ever read, but also Black Rock by Nick Enright, which really does look at that violent young male masculinity that rears its head, particularly in rural settings often, not always, but often. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, those, I think those texts had sort of introduced me to the idea that I think hit home a lot because of my own experiences growing up. And so when I wrote the first version, it was as simple as that. It was saying something about Australian culture, but not really delving into it. But then, of course, when I expanded it into a novel, it there was more that had to be delved into. There was more that had to be explored, and the themes took on more texture. And it became less about a broad, sweeping indictment of Australian culture. It became more about a dissection of Australian masculinity and about 
this particular thing that you see a lot in young Australian guys where something is treated as just a joke until it's not. Yes. You know, something is treated as, you know, you're at the pub and somebody comes up to you and starts, you know, getting in your face and laughing at you and saying this and this, and you start to get a bit agitated. And they're like, what do you want? What do you want about that? It's just a joke. It's just a joke. And I mean, I've, I've told this anecdote before in other interviews, but when I was a, when I was a teenager, I remember there was this kid at school who would do this regularly. You know, he'd always corner me in the halls, shove me around, call me names, whatever. And anytime, anytime I reacted with any kind of anger, Oh, it's just a joke, mate. It's just a joke. What's the matter? It's just a joke. And then there was this one, there was this one afternoon where I was walking down this back street in Mansfield and I didn't know that this was where he lived. And he was standing out the front of his house with a bunch of his mates. He saw me going past, he started yelling things at me. I yelled something back and then suddenly he just snapped and he was like, what the fuck are you doing? He picked up a baseball bat full of nails and he swung it at me. Mm -hmm. And in that moment you go, all right, it's not just a joke. Of yeah. course, it's not just a joke. It's My first instinct is this is something insidious and dangerous and designed to throw me and unsettle me and upset me is very deliberate and that can so easily spill over to violence when challenged when pushed or frankly when given an excuse and that i think was probably the heart of it now i have been criticized in some reviews and online posts for i guess what is seen as a surface level suggestion that Australian masculine that I'm trying to say, oh, all Aussie blokes are basically like the guys in the town. That's not what I'm saying. If I was saying that I wouldn't have the character of Frank in there. I'm not I've, saying that that's an, in, yeah, yeah, I'm not saying that the quintessential Aussie bloke is inherently a bad person or a bad thing to be. I'm not saying that at all. I'm talking about a specific subset yes. of that stereotype. I'm talking about a specific, a specific, uh, I guess, branch of Australian masculinity that does rear its head sometimes. And that's what I'm talking about. And the character of Frank in some ways is positioned as a guy who had the opportunity to go down that road and turned away from it and was punished for it, but stuck to his guns, yeah. stuck to his, you know, commitment to self-improvement. And in the end, for that reason, he prevails. I, th I think in fact, I, that's an interesting criticism because I think the, the, there are so many other male characters in the story that don't adhere to that, that I would like, for me, I'm like, well, obviously the inclusion of Simon and uh, the, the relationships that Delilah has and, and the other males you include, like you get the cowardly, like typical, like you're, you're Darius Ned, Dennis Nedry type. Like you, there is an array of masculinity portrayed in the story, not just from the men either, but from the females as well. Cause masculinity is not just a, a trait exclusively for men. I think that it's, would be my opinion, at least that that kind of criticism is probably a bit lazy because the text definitely addresses like, okay, you know, Maggie's displays of masculinity are probably more in line with the, 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 guys from the town than Simon's ever will be. She has a lot more of her that you would associate with like you kind of hard, hard hitting cigarette smoking, leather jacket wearing bikey. Whereas Simon has a lot more in common with what you would typically consider to be like these feminine characteristics. So I think it's a bit more, I, I don't know, I, I guess, yeah, that never occurred to me as, as something that, that I would have interpreted from the text, because even when you've got these, uh, the, the people from the town pursuing Maggie, um, and and doing these heinous things, it never came across as like, well, they're doing them because they're men. It just so happened that the the masculinity aligned with 
the motivations and it, as you say like it spills over it's like exactly. um it's like yeah. a gateway drug it's like you if you do this one thing for long enough eventually it's not enough and it stops becoming a joke and there's a scene that i really like that i thought was a really um a, a really simple rendering of that where it's i think it's delilah's in a in a bar um and the you know the the blokes are coming up to, or there's a dude that comes up to her boyfriend and is like oh you know how'd you bag that sheila um he's you know he's saying this to charlie and you know what's your secret and he's kind of leering at the girl but he but it's he's challenging the it's it's, it's exactly that joking thing where he's like oh it's just a joke like don't worry about it and, and in fact delilah steps in and diffuses the situation but it's in those moments when you can see like that is such a day-to-day -day thing that happens in Australia that is the stepping stone for that, you know, in the right person's hands, it is that gateway to then the violence like you kind of expressed before. I guess, like, it's, it's unusual to see that in a text that, I mean, obviously it's a thriller, so, so you're there for the action and the violence, but for me at least it unpacked a lot of the themes around masculinity and the, and the everyday way you experience that toxic, toxic version of masculinity. I, I haven't really seen that very often in, in the kind of Australian uh, literary scape. It tends to be more either these sweeping indictments of like every version of masculinity is bad or it tends to be like the opposite where it's like, we're just not going to deal with it at all. I guess I, I can see the, the shorthand of going, you've painted these particular group of people a particular way. It must mean that you think every Australian bloke is a shotgun wielding psychopath. But I, I don't think that's how the text comes across at least. When, when you were kind of putting together the, the town, like obviously you've had that idea for a long time, what was the motivation, I guess, to have, I mean, may, maybe it's kind of what you were talking about earlier, but there is that kind of calm before the storm or there is that sort of the, the gradual growing dread when you spend the time in the town and you start to realize that things are like, all of the things that Maggie's like dismissing where she's like, you're being ridiculous, Simon. Like these are just, country blokes she's dismissing all this stuff and obviously simon's instinct that this is bad news these are bad people turns out to be correct when you were putting together that kind of rising tension um how did you sort of go about making sure that um that those those concerns and those fears from simon because they never come across as naggy or anything like that what was sort of the push and pull of of, of constructing that sort of rising tension in the town knowing that masculinity was going to kind of boil over at some point well, I guess I, when I wrote that first version, I, I didn't really, I mean, I knew things were going to boil over, but I guess I wasn't really thinking about the masculinity question in the, in the very first version of it anyway. Um, I think what I wanted to set up is something that I, I guess this is a, a, I guess a way of reflecting something that I do really believe about, about these kind of rough subsets of Australian society. And that is that if you act like one of them, you're, you're accepted. Yeah. And it's when you don't fit in and it ultimately actually doesn't matter in the slightest in a lot of these places, you know, where you're from, who you are, what gender you are, what anything you are. It's more just, are you one of us? So I think back to when I was growing up in, in Mansfield and I remember that like, you know, you, you have, you have those groups of, you know, rough kind of, you know, wife beater wearing, everybody's trying to emulate their dads in school. Like the guy I just spoke about before. Mm -hmm. And I remember one of, one of the guys in the group who was the most like the most loud, the most crass and the most Aussie was this little Chinese guy. And yeah. he was totally to like, there was no, you know, there was no like, I guess, avert or 
or like racist rejection of him that I could see because he acted every single bit like one of them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even though his parents, you know, his parents were immigrants, he'd only come to Matt's a couple of years earlier, he acclimated far better than I ever could. And I remember seeing similar things. And it was similar things with, you know, like with girls at school as well. Like, you know, you'd see, um, you'd see young girls like, uh, like teenage girls who would behave in exactly the same way as these kind of rough guys. And they were just treated like one of the guys. And, you know, I mean, I think inherently, you know, there's a, there's a base level of acceptance if you're a, if you're a straight white man, but, you know, I mean, likewise, you know, I saw gay guys at school who would act just as rough and, and, you know, ready and judgmental and, and full on and in your face. And they too were totally accepted provided that they embodied a certain archetype. Yeah. Now, what those scenes in the town were sort of trying to set up was that Simon isn't hunted because he's an outsider. He's hunted because he doesn't try to fit in. Yes. Maggie fits in. Had Maggie stayed in the town, had Maggie, you know, she would have been fine. They even say that. They're like, you know, you're, you're one of us, you fit in. And, you know, I mean, one of the things Maggie grapples with is the fact that in a lot of ways, she's not all that different to the hunters. Mm-hmm. But Simon is, and he can't fit in, and that's what makes them turn on him. It's nothing to do with where he's from. I mean, that, that gets weaponized against him, but ultimately it is. And, and by the way, like everything I'm saying just there about like, about, you know, people being accepted no matter where they come from or whatever. I know that that's not always the case. Like, I'm, I'm well aware of that. Yeah. You know, I know that there might be people listening who are like, well, sorry, but like, you know, I was that kid and I was rejected or, or whatever. And, and you know, I, I totally, I, I'm talking about what I saw and I'm talking about what I experienced and, and building off that. I'm not trying to speak for anybody or everybody's experience. Absolutely not. But I guess what I was trying to sort of set up in there was this thing of, there's this, I guess, almost this dramatic irony of being like every every awkward response Simon has him going to bed early, all of those things are the things that are going to doom him. Yes. Because, and that's, and that's not to say that, Oh, you know, Simon should try to fit. It's not to say that at all. It's to say that if you behave in a certain way, you're more likely to be accepted than if you don't, even if you don't actually do anything that's really offensive. It's like the, the very, and this is coming back to my own experience of growing up in a small country town. It's the very act of not trying to acclimate that is offensive and yes. is taken as uh, an affront. I, th- I think it goes both ways too for, for some, for some like not devil's advocate, but for, for the other side of that coin, that is also the case. If you're in a particular situation where people are particularly open-minded, um, if you do have convictions or you have particular beliefs, there is a tendency, like if you don't try and not impose yourself on people, they will do the same thing and reject you. It, it, it's, it's both, it's the extreme, it's the extremeness of the expectation that is the issue. I think with, with the situation of the town, like it's also the, the way that those, um, the way that those projections of, of, uh, behavior also like have real ramifications. Like they do go and kill people and stuff like that. But I think it goes both ways. And that's something that I kind of appreciated with um, a lot of the, the push and pull of the, the females in the story. Like you said, with Maggie, she has that realization that she could probably just fit in and stay there forever if she wanted to. It probably would never be an issue, even to the point where, you know, the sort of the, the predatory gaze of a lot of the males in the town is almost like it's it's their predatory gaze is almost like affirmation that she's fitting in. Like that they find her attractive mm-hmm. is because she's aligning with their, their beliefs and values. Exactly. Which, exactly. which is that's sort of... social. And that's the thing. It's 
Yeah, it's very pernicious. Yeah, it's, it's exactly that. You know, they they see her and they're like, oh, one of us, one of us. And that's what yeah. excites them. And that's what I guess, you know, I guess arouses them. And that's kind of what, you know, pisses Kate off so much and sort of, you know, leads to the particular animosity that she has towards Maggie. I mean, apart, quite apart from the fact that Maggie kills a whole bunch of her friends. <laughs> yeah, but, it doesn't help. Know. But I mean, even even that where it's like, you know, there's a there's a there's a woman in this story who is who's doing the work of that masculinity, in, you know, imbibing that onto Maggie and kind of bull not bullying her, but like, you know, she's like, just stay, stay the fuck away from my man. You know, even that is like, it, it's very subtly, again, just pointing to like this cycle of, if you do the performance, then you're accepted. But when you're accepted, then you have to deal with the, the then you're in. And then you have to deal with the, the different yeah. tensions of that. With the town itself, there's this moment where Maggie kind of stumbles into the warehouse um, and, and the, the truth is kind of revealed um, to an extent of what's been going on. But there's never like an explicit, this is what they've been doing and why. It sort of remains subtext, almost honestly to the end of the story, like unless you're reading between the lines pretty heavily, it's, you never sit down and go, they're killing them for this reason um, and then they're doing this with the bodies. What, I guess when it comes to the silences in the text, um, how did you kind of put that together? What was the decision to not sort of spell out like, you know, whether or not they're, they're killing these people and hanging them up and then eating them or, or they're killing them and hanging them up. Like, how did that sort of, yeah, I, I guess like that, that ambiguity that, that sort of resides at the heart of the town, like, was that something you did consciously or was it just like a natural kind of progression? Uh, very conscious, very, very conscious. And the reason for that is that I always think that things are scarier if they're not explained mm -hmm. or things are scarier if you don't fully understand them. I think that's one of the fundamental tenets of good horror is that if you over, if you, I mean, look at perfect example, I mean, you look at Science of the Lambs in the novel, he literally says to Clarice Starling, don't think you can reduce me to a set of influences. Nothing made me, I made me. And then the film Hannibal Rising comes out and illustrates how fundamentally that is not the case. <laughs> Correct. And suddenly he loses all his mystique. He loses everything that's interesting about him because Nazis ate his sister. He's no longer this unexplainable force of nature. Now, I have a vague idea in my head of how the town became the town. And I want part that thinks, oh, one day I would love to write that story. And I also think it kind of takes away what's interesting about them and it takes away the mystique of them and you know i've had these long conversations with the director of the hunted film about the mythology of it and about sort of where the town came from and what the thing was for it and there will be more clues in the movie i think than in the book mm -hmm. but even then we're very adamant that we don't want to fully explain it or the cannibalism thing as well you know i never wanted to say they were cannibals because in a weird way i actually think it's scarier if they're not cannibal yeah it kind of if, is if you stop and think about it if you like if you look at like big game hunters right like i'm very much of the mindset that you know not not necessarily not necessarily like big game where you know you go and kill endangered animals in africa because that's fucking horrible no matter what way you cut it even if you're doing it for food like i look at i look at okay like pig hunters for example mm -hmm. if you're going out and you're hunting deer and pigs and whatever and you're eating them and that's how you're sustaining yourself and your family i mean fair game you know fair yeah. enough but people who go out and hunt and kill animals for no reason other than their own amusement and sport, and that happens a lot, mm -hmm. that's horrible. It's worse, I mean, yeah. I remember a, a girl I used to date years ago talking about how her ex's most dearly beloved ambition was to one day kill a giraffe. Not because he wanted to eat it, because he just wanted to say that he'd killed a giraffe. And to me, I'm like, what, is that, what does that prove? 
like when I look at big game hunters, you know, posing with dead lions or whatever, where it's, you know, there's it's this curated experience over there where this lion is raised from childhood so that, you know, or from being a cub so that you can kill it one day. I mean, what do you think that makes you a man? Like what you think killing an animal with a gun, like a, an animal that would be able to maul you if you didn't have a gun. So you already have a, have a something over it. What do you think that makes you fucking Tarzan? Like, I mean, that, that, that disgusts me. And the fact that there are people out there who think that that's okay or that's acceptable or that's somehow laudable or something that should be celebrated, it, it really bothers me. Mm. And I guess that's why to me, like, I didn't want to specify it because I was like, well, if they're hunting them for food, like, I mean, it's, yeah, obviously it's terrible. Like, you know, we shouldn't be cannibals, but I think there's almost, there's more logic to it and it becomes less scary. So I guess the answer there is that I actually don't know. I genuinely don't know. I put hints in there, Mm -hmm. but I mean, you know, the bit where Reg gives Maggie the food and Maggie's like, all right, there's clearly something off about this and she throws it in the dirt. I I put that there to be like, yeah, I mean, maybe he's giving her human, but maybe he's not. Maybe he's literally just giving her a pig. Like I, I actually don't know. And I didn't want to answer the question. And fundamentally from a story standpoint, from a tech standpoint, it doesn't matter. You actually no. don't need to know. It, I think they're, I genuinely think that they are more evil if they're not hunting for food, but to Maggie and Simon and all the other characters caught up in the situation, it doesn't matter whether these guys plan on eating them or not. They're still going to kill them and they still have to be stopped. It's, it's irrelevant to the reason they're scary. And I, I think exactly. maybe, exactly. maybe that's why, and I don't, I don't want to speak for other people who read things and then theorize about them, but maybe that's why there is this tendency, I think, in modern kind of media discussion is like, we should be solving all of these problems in a text. Like, look at all these clues. Look at how we put together this really clever thing. Instead of just like letting the silences speak to the themes or, or, or propel you further forward, I think there's sometimes a tendency for people to just want answers. And like that ambiguity should be stamped out. Things should be black and white, yes or no. There, there's just, there, there seems to be this lack of room for just something to be up to your imagination and for you to sort of... Um, either decide or in fact not decide and have that be even scarier. Cause it's definitely, definitely that moment where she goes into the warehouse and you suddenly realize like, Oh shit, Simon was kind of right the whole time. Um, which is, you know, happening in parallel with him being sort of, um, you know, his, his end coming pretty quickly. It, it suddenly puts things into perspective when Maggie then has to admit like, okay, well I was wrong about most of this. Um, I was wrong to dismiss his concerns and there's a bit of reflexivity there of that's that's where I think the text gets a little more complicated with when it's scary plus it's examination of masculinity because the horror, this kind of existential dread of looking at these these corpses that are hung up um, and Maggie herself sort of being put in a situation where she suddenly has to has to defend herself in contrast with her internally admitting like, man, I really fucked up dismissing um the the predatory nature of these people and and dismissing a lot of this stuff that is like oh no she even says herself a few times oh it's just a joke or whatever like she says that a few times to simon she's like they're just blokes man don't worry about it the contrast of those two things means that the focus there shouldn't be what they're doing with the corpses the focus there is her interiority and her realization of like man i really i really boned this up now how am i going to get out of it and that obviously then feeds into the mystery of like is she the good guy or bad guy? Turns out she's at least not as bad as these people. And I think that's where the text for me at least really came together or, or it all clicked in that sense where I was like, oh, okay, now, now I get it. Now I get that it's, it's her dismissing of their behavior that gets them into this situation. It's not necessarily judging her for it, but it's that she's dismissed it. 
that is the issue that's got them this far. And I think that's really the challenge this text provides for, I get hopeful, hopefully that <laughs> this text provides for, you know, young men and young people and, you know, anyone reading it, um, hopefully challenges some of those, those entrenched reactions where you do dismiss it. You do say it's just a joke um, until it's not a joke. And hopefully it challenges a bit of that and, and maybe encourages maybe a bit of reflexivity to say, okay, actually, need to cut that off at the past like it's it's never acceptable to to do some of those things regardless of the consequence um i i, I absolutely yeah absolutely i definitely found found that through the text and i'm glad that we kind of were able to draw that out because i think i think that's what that's at least to me what this story does rather than criticize the blokes or whatever i, I don't think that's the point and i think yeah maybe that's that's just a I think the truth of it is that just sometimes your instincts are correct. Like sometimes, and, and I mean, that's something that I've found to be very true. You know, I've had cases where I've met people who seem on all the surface, like, you know, nice people or whatever, but I have an odd feeling about them. And I always kind of go, no, 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 I don't, I don't really know why I feel that way. I'm, I'm wrong to feel that way. I, I shouldn't judge this person based on a feeling I have. And invariably it turns out that I was right. You know, that yeah. like down the line, it's like whatever, whatever initial discomfort you had about this person often tends to be true. Now that's not to say that instincts are always correct. You know, I've, I've often been proven wrong about people as well, but I think that's sort of the, the divide between Maggie and Simon, which is that, you know, Maggie is somebody who is instinctive, but in the case of this town, she is willfully ignoring her better instincts because she's so fixated on finding this thing she's been looking for. And because of that, you know, she leads somebody to their death, seemingly. But anyway. the, and, and the parallelism of that is Simon is willfully ignoring his instincts about Maggie, but not about the yes, town. Yes. So they're, they're both doing, Exa they're yeah, doing exactly. the opposite. Yeah, yeah. Which is so like, I mean, we've all been in that situation where kind of what you alluded to before, but even in, you know, the, the more subtle instances where you meet someone and there's just something about them that you're like, man, I don't just... They, they give me there's some weird vibe here like there's something about them that does that feels off and you're right it turns out you know i mean i've been in a situation where that's happened and, and i met a guy and they seem nice enough and you go man something's weird here and then you know six or seven months down the track you know it turns out that that you know maybe they they you know have issues with with women and and they you know this in this particular instance um had he had this habit of of um, being very predatory toward the sort of women that we knew when when they've been drinking and stuff like that and taking advantage of them, and it it came out and it it it, it was a situation where it wasn't a surprise because that always been something off in that situation. And I think that's what this access is in a very very real way. But obviously the stakes are much higher because this is like these people have hunting rifles and hunting dogs and that you know they 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 do come and they confront our characters at the end. Pivoting a little bit just to kind of go and, and before we kind of wrap up, discuss a bit of the action and sort of the, the ending set piece and that sort of thing. Um, obviously, one of the, the, the core tenets in storytelling is like that. You want to put your characters in a situation where they can't really run away. Um, one of the hardest things to do in thrillers is to find a way to get your characters in a bottle at the end and have, have them kind of duke it out. This story obviously does that with the the, the great distance that they would have to travel for safety, like the, the huge, the kind of sweeping distance of the Australian outback becomes, you know, the, the, the island in the middle of the ocean, effectively. Was that, when you were putting together that siege stuff, when you were thinking about, like, where should this confrontation take place, was that... Did that come... Like, how did that come about to go, okay, this is... The isolation here is the distance, not you know, some other mechanism? Was that just like a natural progression from the setting? 
yeah, it, it seemed to make sense. I mean, there was there was stuff that I put in the book later to try to just to kind of, you know, to underline the logic a little bit, like the scene where there's the guy who's like driving back from the pub and he's like, oh shit, I'm late, I'm late. I've had too many drinks. And he's got the bottle of wine and he knows his missus is going to get angry at him. And then he sees the two cops like standing on the road and they say the servo's blown up and they turn him away. But even that was designed to kind of underline people are going to kind of rarely come across here. So, I mean, Australia, Jane Harper's book, The Lost Man, I think paints this really beautifully in terms of like just how thoroughly isolated some places are out in the middle of Australia and how, you know, days can go past without anybody crossing that area because why would they? Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, the isolation in this case, I thought I always just kind of felt that that was unique because it does, you're right. It does kind of force the characters into a bottle and there is nowhere they can go for help. The phone lines have been cut. There's no reception. There's, there's nothing they can do. They're stuck out there. And even if they try to run, like how far are they going to get? Exactly. So, yeah. And, and I think I do recommend if people listening, enjoyed the hunted, it's a very different kind of book, but I did take some inspiration from it. Jane Harper's the lost man is I think one of the most evocative, chilling, and interesting uses of that kind of isolation I've ever read. Like she really finds a way to use it to amp up the stakes, but also to thematically underpin what's going on for her characters in a way that I don't think I've really seen before. I mean, Jane Harper's kind of the master of using setting to, to evoke theme and to evoke character. And that book I think was her best in terms of, mm -hmm. in terms of doing that. Definitely. And I, I could feel that influence coming through. I mean, her work as always, like, as you say, she has that particular, um, uh, her magic, you know, the, the, the magic source of her writing is that ability to make char make places into character. Um, and that's definitely something that appears very, very heavily in this text. Obviously, like, it's everywhere. And all of the other, all of the reviews you read will talk about, like, you know, the, the way that it paints the sunburnt country and, like, that it's this kind of, you know, vivid depiction of the outback. But for me, like, that, that last sequence where they've got the, where the, the gas station gets blown up. So, like, A the the only other building they could have gone to is now destroyed and then they have to retreat to the house and you have that that kind of final confrontation um and and you know frank is sort of in the mix with maggie when you approach or i, I guess like maybe this is less of a question and more of a statement but that sequence toward the end where they the the every all the pieces fall into place and they have the confrontation and maggie has to sort of use her ingenuity to kind of trick um, the, the hunters a few times to buy them some time. That stuff feels very natural and like one-to-one. -one. Like it's kind of, um, I, I know at least in the writing space, like we always talk about that as um, like one of the best solutions to any problem in a story is something that you could have thought of yourself or that you could do yourself. So, you know, uh, it, it, a good example is like in that situation, um, Maggie sort of, she cuts the curtains a bit and then um, make sure that she's moving between the house fast enough with her, her gun to make them think that there's more people than there are. It's something that you could ostensibly do if you're in that situation. It doesn't require like a superpower. Like it's not like a, um, something only Wolverine or Superman could do. Like it's a very, very practical like thing you've learned. The great example that people always point to is um, uh, in, I think it's a game and story or something like that, where um, there's a key in the other side of a door and you you push the lock and you get like a piece of paper or something. And if you push the lock, the key falls out. You can get the key for the door. A lot of things like that. When you were approaching the ending of that story, was it uh, was there a lot of rework to get that to feel as concise and deliberate as it is? Or was it one of those things where because of Maggie's character, it just, it kind of happened. Like she kind of took the reins in that practicality. It's, it's a little bit of 
both in some ways. So I was really influenced when I was, I guess, reworking this more than working it by Patricia Highsmith's Ripley series. So the Towns of Mr. Ripley and the sequels. So in the Ripley books, I mean, Ripley is a very different character to Maggie. I mean, if you've seen the movie Talented Mr. Ripley, which probably more people have than have read the book, although the so. book is a lot better than the film, and the film is very good, but the book is better. You know, he's essentially a con man sociopath who in every single book finds himself in some kind of situation where you think he's going to get caught. And he's clearly the bad guy. Like, you know, he's somebody who basically is willing to murder, steal, whatever, to maintain his comfort and way of life. But the solutions that she comes up with for him to get out of the problems mm -hmm. are always really fascinating. Yeah. And I think back to reading a lot of interviews with Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould about Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul and how a lot of the writing process of those two shows was let's write our characters into the hardest situations we can think of and then figure out the logical way out of them. Yeah. And that's why in both of those shows, there's a certain fluidity to the plotting where it doesn't feel heavily planned because it's not heavily planned. Like in both cases, they knew the start and they knew the end. They knew that Mr. Chips would become Scarface in terms of Breaking Bad. They knew that, um, you know, sweet but slightly dodgy Jimmy McGill would become Huckster Saul Goodman. But how it gets from point A to point B was entirely discovered organically by being like, all right, now he's in this difficult situation. What can you do to get out of it? Mm -hmm. There'll be some really innovative solution, but logical solution. And then the next thing that that will lead to more problems. Yes. So, for example, the one I always think of is in the fourth season of Better Call Saul. And it's just, it's so, it's so fascinating to me where... There's a whole thing where Jimmy McGill has been barred from practicing law for a year due to plot circumstances. So he's essentially started selling dodgy cell phones to criminals, like burner cell phones to criminals so that they can, you know, call each other and not get traced or anything. Mm -hmm. And in the middle of this, he ends up getting a policeman turns up, like a plainclothes policeman turns up to try to tell him to stop. His bodyguard, Huell, who's the big guy who is interested in Breaking Bad, sees this happening, has headphones in, thinks that this guy is attacking Jimmy, goes and knocks out the cop, not realizing he's a cop. Next thing, Huell's in trouble. Next thing, Huell's like, well, I'm going to I'm gonna flip, you know, if I, if I don't want to go to jail, I've got priors. Like, I'm going to flip and I'm going to tell them everything if they, if they interrogate me about what you've been doing and about all of Jimmy's illegal operations. So he's like, what do I do? So he uses what's at his disposal to basically come up with this incredibly detailed, the kind of thing you could never think of. But then when you break it down, you go, actually, that makes perfect sense. Plan to get fuel out of it. So he calls on the services of like film students who he's used in format previous episodes to film his ads. He hires them and then he uses all of his burner cell phones to like use the numbers from those cell phones to come up with a fake letter writing campaign from a fake church in Texas, which he builds a website for and sends all of these letters to the district attorney talking about what a pillar of the community Huell is, how great he is, yeah. how they're all going to ride. If anything bad happens to Huell, he comes up with a fake website that shows Huell like working with kids, singing in the choir, all of this stuff. Yeah. And then, you know, all of the letters that come through have phone numbers. And so basically every time the DA tries to call one of the numbers to be like, these people aren't real. One of the film students has like a character that's been outlined for them oh, and nice. they call, they pick up the burner phones they answer that way and basically through that they create this perception of such overwhelming public pressure that the da is forced to let Huel go because things will look too bad for her if she doesn't mm -hmm. and it's just one of those things where you look at it and you go not only is it brilliant and entertaining because it's like how they're going to get out of this and they come up with an innovative way to do it but it makes perfect sense because it's using what has been set up earlier in the story yeah. so the fun that i've had writing maggie as a character 
is, and I've, you know, I've found this in not only writing uh, this book, but in writing a sequel and in writing a couple of short stories about her is to put her in these difficult situations and then be like, what does she have and how can she use it to get out of it? I mean, her mantra that turns up throughout the hunted is what do I have? What yeah. do I have? What do I have? And then she has to find a way to use what's there at her disposal. So in writing the ending, there was no plan at, mo at play there. I was like, all right, she's stuck in the house what's going to happen? They're going to send Kate in. Okay. How's she going to get out of this? And then the innovative solution she comes up with, which I won't spoil if people haven't read it, but if they have, you know exactly what I'm talking about was one of those things where I was like, well, it's just so pure Maggie because it's the kind of thing she would think of that the rest of us wouldn't think of because it's such a horrifying idea, but she does it because it's her and that's how she gets out of it. And then of course she's in the car and it's like, all right, well, how does she stop people chasing her? Well, we've established that they've got fuel there that they were going to use to burn down the house. There's a canister of fuel there. She, you know, yeah. makeshift makes a Molotov cocktail. And it's, it's things like that, or, you know, the bricks that are in the back of the ute that Greg ends up using later, because, you know, if you're in the country and you see tradies utes around, there's always piles of bricks always, and, you know, yeah. rope and stuff in the back. So, you know, it, it's those things. So, mm. and it's funny because I had a call with my publisher a couple of days ago about the sequel and she called and she was like, you've got Maggie using a gun too much. And I was like, what do you mean? She goes, well, she's like, what's interesting about Maggie is her using her surroundings to get out of problems. Yeah. And you've got several scenes here where she gets out of a problem by shooting somebody. And she's like, I don't think that's what people want from Maggie. I don't think that's what I want from Maggie. I want you to work a little bit harder to come up with innovative ways to get her out of it. Mm -hmm. And I hear that and I'm like, cool, you know what? hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. Because you know, that's what's interesting to me and it's challenging to write. And yes, there's always some retroactive finessing. You know, you go back and you'll set things up or you'll plant yeah. seeds. You earlier, go, well, they need the bricks. So let's to... put that in the incidental yeah, description you know, all exactly. that. Yeah. But, but no, generally speaking, I just, I, I try as best I can, and, you know, unfortunately I don't have a writer's room around me to help, but I try as best I can to do the Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul thing of being like, all right, she's in a really impossible situation. How does she get out of it? Mm -hmm. What does she have and how can she use it? And I try to come up with logical, realistic solutions, you know, in the realm of pulpy action thrillers that I can then later on go back and make sure that it all makes sense and all holds together. Yeah. It's not like she's then, she doesn't turn around and like, oh, now I have a rifle and you're like, great, let me put a rifle, like, you know back in the story it's more like jaws where it's like everything they need to to succeed in that yes. situation is already on the boat it just so happens to happen the way it happens um yeah, yeah which I, I mean i always talk about it as like you want you want those solutions to be surprising but inevitable where it's like you're always surprised when it happens but when you look back you're like well it couldn't have happened they couldn't have got out of it any other way you know and i think when those two yes. things come yeah. together that that's like when it's really satisfying and if the setup's there it's just like all the pieces click and it just sort of like everything kind of slots together um, which for me, like, I think all of the, the, the themes and, and the action, like all that stuff comes together really nicely. Um, I'm sure if people have gotten this far into the, listening to this, they will have probably read the book or they have, this hopefully will encourage yes, them to, yes. but is there anything in spoiler territory that, that you want to discuss or talk about? Like, I mean, we could talk about the ending. Like, is there anything that you particularly want to flag or, 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 um, elaborate on at all? Um... Oh, it's a good question. It's like, it's, it's always so funny. I, I said this in a different interview where, you know, it's like a similar question was asked and I was like, oh man, it's like you spend months working on this and thinking about all the things you want to talk about. And then you never get asked the questions you want to get asked in interviews. Mm -hmm. And then you get a chance. Like, and you forget about all the things. About, and you can't think of anything. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I, th I think almost in like, in, like, I mean, the, the spoiler, the, the scalping at the end is, you know, one of my favorite moments, but I have just obliquely talked around that and sort of said everything I would say about that in terms of it's problem solving. Yeah. It's something that's uniquely Maggie. I'm very proud of that scene because I think it defines her character in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, yeah, it's been, it, it's, it's interesting because like Maggie in some ways, you know, she's the center of the book, but she's not traditionally the protagonist 
in the way that Frank kind of is, even though she sort of, you know, resolves everything at the end mm -hmm. or Ali does, you know, with her help. Um, but I mean, yeah, it, it's, it's, it has been really interesting to kind of, you know, in this book really show Maggie predominantly through other people's eyes and then kind of in the second half yeah. introduce, show, show or give the audience like a glimpse into her mind, I guess. But um, but it's been really it's been a real thrill to write the second book, which is entirely her perspective. Like it never leaves oh, her perspective. Cool. You okay. are you're really just seeing her point of view, and you're seeing her thought process. And that what do I have, and how do I use it thing has been really really fun to write because all the way through it, it's like I've been trying to do that, and you know I've, I'm going to remove the guns and find out more innovative ways to do that. Mm -hmm. But um, but you know I, I just find her such an interesting character, and you know I, I feel like even at the end of the inheritance, which delves into her mindset a lot more than the hunter did purely because the whole book is about her and it, it deals very directly with her past in a way that the hunter didn't quite i feel like i know her better and i feel for her more than i did in the hunter mm -hmm. but you know because i'm there's like there's some quite uh, i think heartbreaking aspects of her past and some very tender human aspects of her past that you maybe wouldn't expect having read the hunter mm -hmm. um that you know i think gives her a an extra note of vulnerability that isn't really present in the first book. And that's been really fun to explore. But even at the end of that book, I'm like, I still feel like I've only just scratched the surface of you. Like, I still feel like I don't fully know you yet or understand you yet. And, you know, touch wood, the, the thrill of being able to continue this story will be to get to, I guess, try to continue to get to the bottom of her mm. more than anything else. And, and that, that obviously is like always an ongoing process. It's like anyone, it's like real people, like it sounds cliche or whatever, but like real people, like the, when, when you are invested in someone, you want to keep finding out more about them and you never get to the end because yeah. there isn't an end. Like people are just like infinitely complicated. And I think that is like the, that is the work of character driven stories is you keep wanting to get to the bottom of it. And what you keep finding is like, there is no bottom people kind of keep going. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which, which goes back to what you were saying before about the second you explain someone completely, they just, they lose all their mystique. Um, like Don Draper is like your perfect example. Like every time you think, you know, him, the, 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 the depths of him keep opening up and the, the chasm goes wider because he is that complex. Cause he is, it is a character study. And I, I think when it comes to someone like Maggie inserted into these action stories, it just, it gives it that other layer that you can kind of keep delving into. And even when you kind of review the first book and, you know, on a second read, you can see those flashbacks slipping in where you sort of get these little snippets of her past, but they really just beg more questions than, than they do provide answers. Yeah. So what I've really, yeah. yeah it's, uh, so I'm very, very excited to, yeah, see what happens with her next and kind of follow some of those threads through to see where they kind of end up. Um, but I, I think that's pretty much everything I had for today. Did you have anything else you wanted to, to plug or any upcoming projects that, that you wanted people to know about? Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a few things going on. Like I'm doing, I'm doing quite a bit of TV work at the moment in different writers rooms that I uh, probably can't really talk about too much, but I'm hoping that there'll be some announcements soon. Um, we made a web series in isolation, the pacts, mm -hmm. which is entirely made remotely, um, by a lot of like a team of Melbourne writers and actors and directors and editors and stuff. And that was, I mean, it is what it is. Like it's inherently limited by its format, by the fact that everyone had to film their parts from home with the equipment they had, but I'm quite proud of it in terms of, you know, having, having made something in crazy circumstances. Uh, I also did a, podcast because of a city of melbourne grant called was it worth it during iso that where we interview i guess different creatives across the theater sphere 
and talk about uh, you know the the challenging productions they've had. So we we were lucky enough to interview Noni Hazelhurst. We interviewed Michaela Banis um, in an episode where we talk about Martin McDonough and the Lanann trilogy, which was you know like catnip to me. <laughs> it would um, be yeah yeah that my my next book, The True Color of Little White Lie, comes out on the third of March, mm-hmm. which is very very different to The Hunted again. It's like YA. Uh, you know, coming of age, very gentle, kind of quirky, funny, different to Boone Shepherd as well, if you've read those. Mm-hmm. Um, and then The Inheritance comes out August or July next year. Cool. And then, of course, The Hunted movie has been sort of, you know, chipping away in the background. And there's been some really exciting new developments on that front. I do, I can't say who, but I do know now who will probably be playing Maggie, which is a really exciting development. Cool. Um but again, you know, there's still a still a little bit of a way to go before that goes before the cameras. Mm-hmm. But I'm hoping things kind of happen sooner rather than later. And cool. outside of that, I don't think there's there's too much else that I can really, you know, say go go listen yeah. to this thing or watch this thing or but, do this thing. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like you're busy enough anyway. Um, <laughs> adding more to your plates for yeah. all you need. Yeah. Uh, love it. I mean, obviously, like the people can follow you on Twitter. You have your website. Googling you is the easiest way to find all your stuff. I think. Um, yeah, it all comes up pretty yeah, quickly. People know where to find all of our stuff as well. Um, we've just launched our new publication, Zero Indent. Um, so if you like the media crit we do, you can go read a ton of articles there. It's, it's the best place to find our stuff now. Otherwise, thank you for taking the time and joining me. It's always a pleasure. I've got, I could literally talk for like another five hours <laughs> about this stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah, really appreciate it. And um, hopefully, yeah, when, when you've got something else coming up, we'll, we'll definitely talk soon and go from there. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on again. It was great. Thanks, man.